1: Today, I'm excited to change the conversation from diversity to education with my friend and colleague, Jay Shannon. Jay is a program manager for the Youth Empowered Schools Program, yes, with Project Oz Services in Bloomington, Illinois. His specialty is designing and implementing school-based restorative practice programs. He has a long history of working for children, youth, and families with a specialty working in the field of conflict resolution education. Jay has often stated that he was restorative well before he knew about restorative practices. Jay entered the field of mediation when he got the opportunity to work for Project Dawes Human Services and Bloomington Public Schools as an outreach counselor, providing services for the most challenging underserved populations. Not being in a position of authority or a disciplinarian, Jay quickly realized that change in a school could only occur once a sense of community was built. After successfully affecting change in one school, he began to train counselors to build community and implement new techniques to address conflict resolution in all public high schools in the Bloomington Normal area. These practices were also used in two local junior high schools. Over the last 15 years of intervention work in education, Jay has been recognized by many entities, including the state of Illinois House of Representatives, for his work with youth in the Bloomington Normal community. In an effort to always expand his knowledge in the area of conflict resolution, Jay was also trained in civil mediation at Northwestern University School of Professional Studies in Chicago, Illinois. Jay began his formal restorative practice training with Master IIRP, which stands for International Institute of Restorative Practice Trainer, Kevin Jones, in 2016. Jay continued on his formal restorative training journey and became a licensed IIRP trainer in 2018 and became a part of the first restorative leadership team in McLean County, Illinois. Jay now trains schools across Central Illinois in restorative practices. He considers himself more of a restorative storyteller. Jay says people want to learn the stories behind the practice. Restorative practice is not the car that you drive. It's the road you drive your car on. Welcome, Jay. And thank you for agreeing to talk with us today, especially when I know you leave on vacation tomorrow.
0: Thank you so much, Kim, for having me. I couldn't wait to get on your show.
1: I'm really excited about talking to you about restorative practice. There's a lot about restorative practice that parallels choice theory I know you've had some choice theory training and you're an expert in restorative practice. So I'd like to hear a little bit more about the work that you're doing in school. And maybe a little later, we can draw some of the connections with choice theory.
0: Yeah, that's a very interesting comment that you made. There are quite a few parallels between choice theory and restorative practices. I was just recently working with some young people today, and I actually give them a section of both as we're going through conflict and how to define conflict and what it looks like. Our program with Project Oz that we have, a partnership, a collaboration with both District 87, that's the school district in Bloomington, Illinois, and Unit 5, which is the school district in Unit 5. So currently, we serve three public high schools, one junior high, and two elementary schools. We have outreach counselors that are embedded in each school, and truly the goal for the program at the high school level is to assist students with graduating from high school on time to figure out some of the challenges that some of the students are having, provide them some resources, but not only help them get to graduation, but help them with planning on what they're going to do once they walk across that stage. We do it in multiple ways. Really, we identify young people that may be having challenges with truancy or discipline or just overall academics, some of them have social emotional concerns to where they just don't feel like they belong. And we try to address those issues and give them some resources and some support to be successful. But we also reach out to the families and we include them and try to increase the parental involvement in both school districts. We engage those families, we do home visits with those families, and we really walk them through how to build those relationships between them and the school systems that are a part of their child's lives because ultimately we know that those kids will be more successful if they have their parents involved.
1: I can only imagine that some of the parents of the students that are struggling could have been your clients 20 years ago. They were probably the same kids who struggled in school and maybe didn't get services. How do you bridge that gap? How do you get parents who maybe didn't have a good school experience to try to advocate for their own kids in that same environment?
0: Kim, you really bring up a very valid point. Well, I'm in the middle of my 17th year in the school, so I've actually run into that situation specifically where I had a student in the school and now I have their child in the same school system mm. that we started. What we found is that it's not something new that we're realizing now is that so many of the parents that we're working with they are suffering from some trauma from their experience with education. That is truly an inhibitor between them wanting to reach out to the school because of how they feel. I can't even count the amount of times that I've called home to a parent and they've expressed to me that feeling of that anxiety they have when they see the school's number pop up on their phone ID. And what happens is that changes the tone of the conversation. Those parents are challenged with it and our administrators sometimes need to be aware of some of those challenges. Often I talk to our administrators and I tell them, I said, it's amazing how parents tell me that the first interaction they ever get with the school is negative. Nobody ever calls home when the student is doing great. Right. They tend to call home and it's a problem. So the bottom line is now you're going to always be associated with a negative feeling when it comes to education. And it's something to kind of be aware of.
1: Yeah, I think that that would be a big hurdle for parents to overcome. I know that today you did a training for peer mediators. Now, when I think of peer mediators, I'm thinking you're talking about students. So you had some students give up a Saturday to come in to Project Oz to learn about mediation. So what do they do? How do you utilize them? And how much do they really help?
0: Wow, that is a great question. And we're super excited about bringing this program back to one of the schools we serve. In Bloomington, Illinois, one of our high schools, one that I'm most familiar with, Bloomington High School, we used to have a peer mediation program years ago. But over time and some other circumstances, we slowly stopped using it. But this year again, a group of students actually came and said, we want to be a part of creating a better culture in our school. We've always had the philosophy that the reality of the way uh, education looks these days is that adults are outnumbered in the building. There are 1,600 kids and there may be 80 teachers in the school. So the best way to truly affect change is not to try to make change, but to give the students the tools they need so they can support themselves. Out of that concept, we really decided to go back to more of a peer mediation format. So I had 23 kids that signed up to do our peer mediation program and training today. The way our training looks is that we start off with a five-hour training, Then they'll have 10 hours of virtual training. And then there's going to be a regiment of role plays that they show proficiency before we put them out there for them to deal with some of the disputes that happen in the school. So for our peer mediation program, it's basically by referral. It's referral from peers, it's referral from teachers, and it's also referrals from administration. We're hoping to get more proactive in our approach to how these kids interact instead of us always acting reactively. That's one of the tenets of restorative practice is that in any setting, we should be spending 80% of our time building relationship and only 20% of our time actually repairing harm. What happens so often is, We put all of our effort and all of our resources in repairing harm, but the problem is that's not sustainable. The goal is for us to get ahead of the problems, build stronger ties, build stronger relationships, improve our culture, and through that, we'll help to deviate some of the larger offenses that tend to happen over time in the school. We met today, and the training basically was four phases. The first phase was just a getting-to-know-you portion. The second phase was defining what conflict really was and talking about some of the roots of conflict. This third phase was building the skill set. And then the fourth phase was the mediation process. We worked through that. The kids did a phenomenal job. And we're really excited to see what they're going to be doing next.
1: Well, I imagine for the kids to do a phenomenal job, they would have had to have phenomenal instruction. So I'd like to give you some kudos on that. If they were doing well, it had something to do with their teacher, I would imagine.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Now, who are they mediating? Is it two students, a teacher and a student? Who? Ah,
0: That's a very, very good question. And it completely depends. In years past, we have had student to teacher conflicts. The majority of them are student-to-student conflicts. Occasionally, there will be a parent-to-student conflict. With our embedded school staff that we already have in the building right now, We are a big part of those mediations. So when the larger mediations come up that are a little bit more involved or a lot more delicate, the school will have project guys come in and we will actually mediate between the two parties. The whole goal is to come up with solutions on what our next steps will be. How do we heal the relationship? Even if a suspension does occur, the question is, how do we welcome this young person back into the community after they've had this consequence? And so often in education, we think about removing the child very quickly, but when they come back, we don't spend as much time really developing what that reintegration process would look like. Because we really don't want to create a scenario where they don't feel like they're welcome
1: anymore. Right. Because then you've got an alienated kid and alienated kids will act in ways that match that particular phenomenon. They're not contributing to the overall health of the school environment when they're feeling alienated. What warms my heart, you probably know, you've mentioned it a couple of times, is the focus on relationships. You know that that is a central core tenet of choice theory, obviously. And research is supporting relationship, relationship, relationship in almost every area that you can think about. Relationship in education between teachers and students, relationship in parenting between parents and kids, relationship in counseling between the counselor and their clients. And I just learned today about research that shows employee satisfaction is about relationship with managers. Relationship is such a cornerstone. How do you help people improve relationship?
0: Wow. You know, it's amazing how when we have the conversation about relationships, we know the answer already. The idea of how we become a part of each other's lives and the support that once we know that you care about me, I'm more likely to listen to what you have to tell me. So it's a big part of education. It's definitely a big part of families also. So how do we truly build relationships? How do we build healthier relationships? We treat communicating and relationships like a science, like we do everything else. We study it. We look at the best communicators and the strongest relationships throughout history. We look at what components they have. And then we're more intentional about giving everybody a little bit more of that. I'll give you an example. One of the things in restorative practices that we talk about very often is the social discipline window. To make it really simple, you would break it up into four quadrants. And on the vertical, you would have, think of somebody who gave you a high level of support. And then on a horizontal, you would think about somebody who gave you a high level of control. Now, the thing is, is that when we function best is when we get high levels of support and we get high levels of control, which is limit setting and expectations. If we know that to be true, then we want to function in that window the majority of the time. We call that the with part of the window. We want to work with people. What we can easily do is we look at what times are we giving low support and low control and we try not to live there. We look at what times are we giving high levels of control, but low levels of support. And we don't want to live there. We want to live in that space where we're committing to working with somebody. It's something that we need to be more intentional about and hold ourselves accountable to and teach other people how to hold themselves accountable to it also.
1: I like that. When you talk about control, you know, from a choice theory perspective, I don't like the word control. Absolutely.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. But, but, but when we talk about control, we're not talking about control over someone else. Right. But we're talking about control as in these are expectations that you'll set for yourself. And I'm just going to help you be held accountable to that level that you want to be at. Yeah. let me give you an example. When I sit down with a young person and I talk to them about a grade in a class and we talk about what's your expectation? What do you believe that you can do in this class? And they say, well, I believe I can get an A. I say A is 90 percent. This is the work that we need to put in to get to 90%. Are you willing to do this work? If they're willing to do the work, now my job is real easy. This is mm-hmm. what it takes to get mm-hmm. it. Now that's the control part for us. And when we start talking about RP, it's not you doing what I need you to do. Right? It's me assisting you in accomplishing the goal that you set for yourself. And you get to set it because it's your life that you're making a decision for. And I'm not making it for you. I'm just helping you along the way.
1: So let me give you an example of my life. I had a son who was a jock. That was his identity in school. And he was also very intelligent but he did not want A's on his report card because he would have lost respect with his peer group. He didn't want to be a brainiac. He wanted to be average in school, but excellent in sports. So he worked hard at getting B's and C's on his report card. Mm -hmm. And when I say he worked hard, he would have naturally gotten A's. So he had to make mistakes on purpose or miss assignments on purpose. And when he told me what he was doing, as much as that pained me as an Honor Society student, and knowing what he was capable of, it was really hard for me to support that. But I knew that that's what I had to do because that was what was most important to him. And when we talk about relationships, and you mentioned the word belonging. I think that as parents, because I've been one, we want to steer our child in the direction of belonging with the group that we want them to belong to, not necessarily the group that they want to belong to. And I think it's really important to pay attention to that because kids do need that feeling of belonging. I 100% agree with you.
0: It's amazing. I happen to have a phenomenal choice theory instructor, and she once explained to me how I need to remove the filter that I have in deciding what somebody else may want. What I need to do is let them make the decision for themselves and I help them get there. It's really important that we look at that because you had a picture of this A student for your son, but that's not what he desired right now. That's right. And that can be difficult. That can be hard to realize.
1: (laughs) It was painful.
0: (laughs) Yes. But then he went
1: to college and he was on the dean's list because he was studying what he wanted and he wasn't worried about impressing his jock friends anymore. It was really interesting how that went.
0: That's awesome. I love it.
1: Yeah. And I also find you may see this as well in your work, that when we are pushing students to go in a direction that they don't want to go, the pushback is equal to the amount of pushing we're doing. A lot of times when we stop pushing, the child will move in the direction we want them to go because they don't have to push back anymore. Just not a guarantee. But a lot of times when you're pushing and trying to control over people, you get more of what you don't want.
0: Yeah. The problem with that is that again, it's your goal, not theirs. One of the things that I used to love, it was a quote that went along that sometimes you plant the seed that you never see Mm grow and something along those lines. One thing I've always talked about when it comes to education and kind of bring it back to education is so often we teach compliance and not education. Mm -hmm. We want them to comply to the standard that we set without giving them the why. So there's literally no buy in from the student on why we set certain rules or why we do things the same way that we've been doing them for the last 50 years. We need to get away from that and just present some of the reasons why things are important. And once they realize that, you'd be amazed at how they might buy in.
1: It's true. In high school, because I was a book smart kind of kid, I was put in calculus class. And I'm telling you, Jay, I've lived 62 years so far and never once needed to know anything about calculus in my life. It was totally, in my opinion, useless information. But I had a teacher who said to me, if you're planning to go to college, taking this class will help expand the way that you think. And I thought, well, who doesn't need to expand the way that they think? So I bought in, you know, it was something like, yeah, I want to go to college. Yeah, I want to think the best way that I can possibly think. Let me learn calculus. And I don't know how it changed my thinking. I'm not sure about that. (laughs) It doesn't even matter. I know that when I went to school, the school that I went to, psychology was in the natural science school rather than the social science. And as a psych major, we had to take college calculus. I got an A in college calculus and many of my peers dropped out of psych because they couldn't pass calculus. That was the one time I can tell you it was very valuable in my life that I had taken that high school class and paid attention and did well. But you have to have the adult who is able to connect the dots as to why do you need to learn this? How will this help you? And if they can't make their agenda, the curriculum that they're teaching relevant to your reality, then they're going to lose you. Yeah. Yeah. I
0: think it works the same way for us as adults. It's, it's so <laughs> often that that we it's so easy for us to frame up when we think about younger people. You're right. But honestly, as adults, we know we're the same
1: way. Absolutely. Especially if you're a high freedom person like me. I was the kid that constantly said, but why? But why? But why? I don't understand. But why? And I'm still saying those things. <laughs> Help me understand why we need to do it like that. Yeah. And if you can, I'm all in. If you can't, I'm not doing it.
0: <laughs> that was one of the areas that was so funny in the peer mediation training today. I go through Glass's five basic needs when it comes to defining conflict and what motivates conflict sometimes. The fact that everyone has the same five needs, but we don't necessarily have the same amount of each need. We did the exercise. I put all the needs up on the board and I had the students list the ones that are the most important to them. What is your need for love and belonging? Where is your need for freedom or fun or so on? And I'm putting my list up and I put one for freedom. And everybody is saying, Mr. J, what do you mean? You put a one for freedom? You know, it's not power. It's not survival. Come on now, you gotta worry about surviving. I said, no, honestly, if you wanna see me at my worst, put me in a cubicle for the entire day and tell me I have to do the same thing every single day. I'll do anything to get out of there. I said, no, but yeah. you put me in an element like this where I get to interact with you guys. And it's a creative environment to where I see light bulbs coming on with you guys for the first time. And you're sharing your experiences with me and I'm sharing mine with you. And I'm just lighting up. I could do this six days a week all day long. It's because I need the freedom to create and do these things. Mm -hmm. Now, the thing is, people in conflict are going to do whatever they have to do to get their needs met. And if you understand that and you can identify their needs, maybe, just maybe, you can help them find another productive way to get that need met instead of what's going on that got them in the conflict.
1: Beautiful. There is one of the connections with restorative practice. Do you have some others? Can you tell us more about restorative practices? And then if you happen to find a link to choice theory, we could talk about that.
0: No problem. When I'm doing that section on defining conflict, I take that parallel of the five basic needs and then I go directly from there to the psychology of affect and restorative practices. The idea of the psychology of affect is that whenever some stimulus is introduced to you at any given point, that there are only nine in eight biological responses that we know to give to any new stimuli. Out of those nine responses, when something is introduced to us, two of them are positive, One is neutral and the other six effects are negative. The bottom line is that whenever somebody introduces something to you, there is a six out of nine chance that they're going to perceive it as something negative. There's only a two out of nine chance that they're going to perceive it as something positive. And then that one in the middle is like they freeze and they're like, wow, I don't know how to deal with it. The idea of when you're thinking about conflict is that you want to really look at it through that individual's lens and how they were affected by it. The example I gave at the school is that think about that teacher that calls you out in class and asks you a question that you don't know the answer to. You innately are going to have a response. And when you have that response. You may be doing anything that you need to do to get away from that feeling of not being secure. It's very similar to how we look at our five basic needs. I didn't have a high need for safety. I've just always lived a life where I've relatively felt safe. So it falls a little bit lower on my needs, my basic needs, than it may be for somebody else that may have had experiences to where safety was something that they worried about and they were concerned about for the better part of their life. What we try to do is we try to draw these parallels. Okay, these are your needs. And then now when we introduce stuff to you that you may not be aware of, how do you respond to it? Through looking at those parallels, we try to figure out, Okay, this might be the root cause of this conflict. And let's start to really break down how we can kind of move past it.
1: Great. I love that because it does take into account what is motivating and driving the people that are in conflict and it's not the same for everyone and so the solution to conflict is going to be as individual as the two people that you have who are not getting along or in conflict Absolutely I know that we have all experienced a big blip on the educational screen because of COVID There are kids who have been schooled via Zoom there are kids who went to the classroom with masks on and I think about how that must have affected kids because to me at 62, two years of that is like a little tiny fraction of my life. But if you're talking about an eight-year-old kid, two years is their whole entire life. And even as a teenager, two years is a long time. What do you see as to how COVID may have affected students, but also how is education trying to recover from that trauma that we've all been through?
0: This is one that I speak to on every level, because I think a lot of times we look at this trauma on how kids are affected, but we really don't look at how this trauma is on not just the kids, but their parents, the teachers, Mm -hmm. and the administration. The example that I often give is that kids went to school in seventh grade, COVID hit, and all of a sudden they're a freshman in high school. In those two years, there's so much development that they have that they weren't prepared for when they came back into the building. Last year was the most challenging year when the kids were coming from hybrid learning, the remote learning platform that many schools were on, back to in school last year because so many of those kids just could not adapt. They could not understand when that bell rung and it was time to go to the next class. They just did not understand why they needed to comply and they just (laughs) didn't. So we would have kids in the hallways all the time and you would try to get them into the class and they would just literally refuse. I'm not going. And when you think about it, I would have conversations like, why is it so hard? And they're like, I haven't seen my friend in almost two years. We're holding a conversation and I want to finish the conversation. I had to stop and say, wow, they felt isolated. They didn't have that day-to-day interaction that they were used to. And now they get it and they just want more of it. Again, it strengthens the whole concept of how important these relationships are.
1: Absolutely.
0: but then look at it from a teacher standpoint. You get into, get used to the routine of teaching in class every single day, developing your curriculum and what you're going to cover each day, each day, each day. And COVID hits and now everything's remote. And now you have to shift every way you ever taught in your entire life to this new format that you're truly not confident or really prepared to go into. When COVID first hit, we started doing listening circles with teachers just so they would have an opportunity to vent some of their frustrations on decisions being made at the district level. And then them just telling the teachers what they have to do. And teachers saying, well, I just don't know how to do that. I'm just not prepared. So then you have teachers that came in during COVID. And then now we're back in person and classroom management is becoming a huge challenge. And then some of our older teachers just said, you know what, I can't do this and I'm walking away from education. So then at the junior high that we serve, they literally turned over 60% of their teachers in one year. You have that many brand new teachers that have less than two years experience teaching some kids that haven't been to school in two years. COVID was a perfect storm of dynamics that at every single level, people were really missing the communication and the relationships And the culture was damaged from them not having that person to person interaction. And I really think it's something that education and even our community is really going to see some negative results for years to come. We'll be looking back later and saying, man, I didn't realize how much damage COVID really did to how we treat each other and interact with each other.
1: Yeah, the ripples are going to be felt and we don't even know what those ripples are yet.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And you're in the thick of it.
0: Well, the thick of it is part of that freedom of basic needs. I need to be in the thick of it.
1: Mm -hmm. We are coming to the end of our time. I just want to give you an opportunity if there's anything we haven't talked about that you'd like to add.
0: Okay. The only thing that I would like to add, I would like to leave all of your viewers and listeners with one idea. The idea is to be intentional about building relationships. One thing that I like to talk about is that starting a relationship is easy, but repairing a relationship is very challenging. The more you damage a relationship, the more people and the more time it's going to take to repair it. But if we constantly invest in a relationship on the front end with as many positive things as possible, it's like deposits in the bank. And the more deposits that we make into that account on that day when we need to make a withdrawal, there's enough in the bank to still pay all the bills, if you know what I mean. I do. So all of your listeners, if, if I can leave them with any one nugget is make as many deposits as possible on the front end of building relationships. And believe me, they're going to pay dividends in the long term.
1: That's awesome. Thank you for that. Jay, if people want to get a hold of you and maybe find out more about the work that you're doing or maybe get some help with some mediation of their own, how would they do that?
0: Absolutely. You can reach out to me at our Project Oz website. That's www.projectoz.org. You can give us a call at Project Oz. That is 309-827-0377. If you ask about the YES program, I would love to kind of talk to you a little bit more and share with you some of the things that work for us. And maybe at some time, if you're interested in getting some training and restorative practices, we may be able to come out and assist you a little bit and really try to build a more inclusive culture in all of our schools.
1: Cool. Cool. I love that. I hope people do reach out. I really, truly enjoyed talking with you today, Jay. I love talking to passionate people who are making a difference in the lives of underserved kids. It's so important and very needed. Thank you for what you do.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Kim. And I appreciate it also.
1: And my pleasure. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast, and remember to leave a review and share with your connections on social media. I also hope you'll join me next week when I'll be interviewing Margaret Parks about neurodiversity. I'm looking forward to it. Talk with you then. This has
0: been another thought-provoking episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. To listen to past episodes, please visit our website at lifeequalschoices.com, or listen wherever you download your podcast, and don't forget... Remember to subscribe.